Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk to Josh Boots. He's been a fixture in the Alaska rap scene since the 90s, back when he helped form Arctic Flow Records. It's a legacy that solidified him as one of the best, most authentic lyricists from Alaska. He says that he and the rest of Arctic Flow truly believed that one day they would take over the world with their music. It was a belief and a dream supported by talent and by selling weed. That was a big part of maintaining the dream for Josh, the weed. It brought in the money that supported his lifestyle. Since 18, that was mainly what he did for work. Now, at 44, he owns and operates a legal dispensary in Anchorage. He says that making that transition from the traditional market to the legal one was a huge jump. But there are similarities, like how you treat the customer and how you operate in the industry. Those principles that kept him successful in the old market are now crossing over into this new legal market. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine and pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber Seward Brewing Company The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau Derek Adolph Sharon Liska Jake Liska Alaska Surf Adventure and Borderline Legacy Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers, baby onesies, and more. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to Josh Boots. There was this moment when he was mixing his first album, Cold Weather Survival Guide, at Unique Studios in Times Square. He was looking out of a 10-story window thinking, man, we're here. We made it. Partly because all of the action outside, the Puerto Rican Day Parade was going on, and he had a clear view of Total Request Live. And partly because of all the greats who had recorded at that same studio. James Brown, Ice-T, Tupac, Nas, Madonna, Public Enemy, Big Pun, Mob Deep, the list goes on. And now, at 21 years old, Josh was there too. It was a dream come true. The rebellious kid, who had little to no supervision, and a tumultuous upbringing, just running up and down the streets of Muldoon causing trouble, was now on the path to being a household name. But he had to make a choice, chase his rap dream, or be a family man. He and his wife were in their 20s, and they were starting to have kids. They would eventually have six, and he wanted to give them the upbringing that he never had. 
although he never wanted for anything, including love and affection. He grew up in a rough household, with lots of partying, drugs, and alcohol, and he knew that's not the environment he wanted to raise his own kids in. So he chose to be a family man, instead of a rapper. It's a decision he's thought a lot about over the years. Did he give up on his dream, or did he follow his destiny? Ask him, and he'll tell you. What happened is what was supposed to happen. So here he is, Josh Boots. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! How often do people in Alaska recognize you as Josh Boots the Rapper and tell you what your music meant to them? Uh, it happens a lot. I think it, you know, it still happens a lot to this day. Uh, I might be at Walmart or out at a restaurant or somewhere and someone will come up to me or, you know, when they see my name, uh, say I'm filling out something at a business or something and they see my name. Um, and they just, you know, people are real nostalgic about that time period. I think it was a special time in the music um, scene when we were really active and doing our thing. And so I think there are still a lot of people that are pretty, pretty connected to that, to that, um, to that era. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you usually say to them? I just, I just, you know, listen to what they say and tell them thank you and, you know, keep it super humble and very appreciative to be receiving the compliment and, you know, just thank them for, you know, for listening and, tell them how you know it feels good when someone recognizes you and mm -hmm. and what you've done uh in the community and so you know i just let them know that i appreciate the compliment and you know very thankful to hear the, those type of things yeah 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 do you feel like you've always been like that i think so i, I was always i've always been kind of uh just pretty humble about that whole thing and you know any anytime people give me compliments, you know, I just I just kind of take it accordingly and I've always been super humble about it. So, yeah, I think I've always been that way with when it comes to like dealing with 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 people expressing how they feel about the music. So you don't uh, you don't pull a tough guy on him. No, never, never, <laughs> never. Okay. It's like super, one of the uncomfortable things is like, oh, you're the best ever. Or, you know, they, yeah. they'll say stuff like that. Or, you know, you're the best to do it. And, you know, heard that a lot from, from people coming from here. And that's like kind of awkward because I don't, you know, what do you say to that? I just, I just say thank you. And I, I really appreciate it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like those responses can maybe take some time to collect, you know, and then you, then you can draw from that pool of, of responses because I would imagine the first couple times it happened, it was the most awkward and maybe you didn't even know what to say. You know, that too is like coming from a different era where there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, personal communication face to face. And that's kind of how we grew up. Mm -hmm. And so like early on I was out, you know, selling my CDs hand to hand or giving them out or, you know, everywhere I go, I'm talking to people, I'm, whether it's the mall or whether it's a different state, you know, selling CDs on Venice Beach or wherever. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was like developed kind of right away through, you know, just thousands of conversations with people over the years. But 
yeah, I think pretty early on you kind of like learn what to say and what not to say. And definitely you never want to come across as, you know, fully yourself or, or cocky in any way. So yeah, I, I just always kind of like take that humble approach. Was there a point when your approach kind of switched? You know, you just talked about selling your CDs at Venice Beach, you mm-hmm. know, in that situation, you're in like seller mode mm-hmm. rather than the mode that we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. where people are coming up to you and telling you, you know, how much your music meant to them. That's more like established mode. No, I think, yeah, you're right. Um, there's there's definitely a difference, like the nuance of when you're selling the CDs, I, I guess I'm relating it to that because we would hear a lot of times like they relate you to some famous person that they think you sound like, mm-hmm. you know, and then you pivot off of that and like, you know, like, oh, yeah, I do sound like someone, but, you know, it'd be the craziest thing, like Busta Rhymes or somebody they would say or you know, <laughs> Eminem, they would say a lot, you know, huh. and uh, and just so I guess I guess that's why I kind of related it to the other question, other part of the question. But I, yeah, I think like in sales mode, you know, a lot of times we're it's really about spreading the music and getting the message out there and getting the product out there. Mm-hmm. So you kind of like morph into whatever that whatever is going on in that conversation and and, you know kind of flow with the conversation and the line that they're taking it that's going to either you know make them buy the cd or buy it for a lot of times we maybe they didn't like it but we'd say hey i know you're you're probably out here traveling i know you have a even like grandmas and grandpas and stuff we'd sell it to like nobody Hmm. was off limits and then we would flip the flip the script to kind of like oh well you know how cool would it be if you where are you from oh iowa okay how cool how awesome would you be as a grandma to like bring your grandson something so cool that came all the way from Alaska that you found in Venice Beach and you know kind of like flip it like that and yeah and you know just whatever it took to get to get the message out yeah yeah so the other week we were messaging and you were like I'm finally ready to do that interview with you yeah you said you were finally able to talk about everything. What's been keeping you from talking about everything? Um, I think just, I guess just time and getting away from, you know, things that were in the past and putting time in between it, I guess. And, um, you know, transitioning, I guess it depends on what you're talking about. Like the music stuff, I don't have a problem talking about. Then there's other stuff that, that is a little more touchy, you know, I guess. Yeah. What's that stuff? Oh, uh, you know, just like, like what we did to make it happen, I guess. You know, financially. Yeah. And would that be selling weed? Yeah, selling weed was the majority of it, you know, and then there's periods of, of doing other stuff, um, you know, in the early 2000s, like... You know, it's a long time ago and just kind of, I guess, just stuff I didn't, I didn't want to talk about. I still am not, you know, too into talking too deep on it. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously the weed was something that was the biggest part of my, of my life. Something that I've been involved with since I was 18 and, and now I run a, a retail store in Anchorage. And so making that transition from, you know, the traditional market to the legal market 
was a huge jump and figuring all that out. And I kind of just, you know, didn't want to talk any about any of that while it was kind of still in the works, you know, so. Like it might gum it up. Right. Or, you know, just putting too much info out there at the wrong time. Yeah. And right now you feel more established. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've been in the legal uh, market since 2019. Um, and so, yeah, for, we just had our three year and actually yesterday was the three year anniversary of the store opening. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been three years, been going super good. Um, and yeah, just happy to be on the other side of things for sure. How do you think having sold weed when it wasn't legal has helped you sell weed now that it is legal? I mean, it's everything like it's it's the foundation to what we do from, you know, knowing what what type of product to buy to, you know, the pricing to how to it, a lot of it is how to treat people, the culture, you know, like, um, you know, just going above and beyond to make sure that customers are always happy, that they're always right, treating employees with respect, treating vendors with respect. And it just basically like really how you treat people, how you move, how you operate within the industry, those principles kind of of what kept me successful so long um, in the old market are are really trans, you know, just kind of crossing over to what I'm doing now. So I, mm -hmm. I kind of just apply those same principles into what I'm in everything I'm doing now. Um, and it's it's been working out really good so far. I think at one point you and I were talking, this is years ago when you were starting your dispensary mm -hmm. and I think you mentioned something like this was meant to be kind of thing. You know, yeah. I, like you'd been doing, you've been doing those sales illegally. And then now it's legal, you know, kind of maybe the world caught up finally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then now you're in a position to have a business, like a legitimate business. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it was, I think it was meant to be, I mean, growing up, I grew up, you know, in the eighties and nineties and, and that was a, you know, a pretty party hard era, you know, a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol. I grew up, you know, kind of in that environment. And I remember being, you know, eight years old and knowing that, that weed was the kind of the less of all those things. And, and so, um, it's kind of just, as far as like it, it being meant to be the way everything fell into place with the business and everything, you know, mm -hmm. it just, it just felt like it was right. Like this, the locate where I have my store is on Boniface here, like uh, Boniface right before the Seward highway. Mm -hmm. And like, I grew up, you know, I caught the bus at this, at Carpentier's bar. I used to go and, you know, get candy from the, the used to be Seven Eleven back then, but the Tesoro over here, I mean, I've been, I've been just in this area my whole life. Um, the owner of the building here was a, you know, our families go back to the first, you know, to the, to, so his dad and my grandpa uh, were, came to Alaska in like the sixties and were the first, uh, my grandpa was a state farm, first state farm agent in Alaska. And then his dad was the first field adjuster. So that's kind of like how our family history goes back. And then, you know, uh, the landlord here, his son and I, you know, grew up playing hockey together and, 
you know, we all play on men's league team together. So it's just kind of like tied into this family, like community connection. Um, and like, I literally got this store through, you know, from the owner through, through a coffee cart window on Boniface. Really? In, uh, okay. Northern Lights. Yeah. Like we had been talking about it cause we play on, we play on a men's league hockey team together. And I told him kind of what I was doing and I was getting into it. And then, you know, a few days later I ran into him at the coffee cart and uh, I was told the girl, Hey, let me buy that guy's coffee through the window. And then mm -hmm. he's like, Oh, thanks for the coffee. Hey, by the way, that, that store, I got a store opening up on Boniface if you want it. And at the time I had just got the grow in, um, Wasilla. And so I was just like, financially, there's no way I could think about taking on a store and paying how to do all that and just didn't have the money at the time. So I told him no, that I wasn't interested in it. And then after driving away, like 20 minutes later, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I knew I had to figure it out no matter what. So I just called mm -hmm. him up and told him I'd take it and had no clue how I was going to put it together or finance it or anything like that. And so we ended up we ended up carrying that was in 2017 and we opened the store in 2020 so i was just holding this place for three years basically until i could actually you know put everything together to make it happen financially so yeah but yeah it was pretty crazy and like the first night when weed went legal my wife and i drove around anchorage and i you know looking at all these spots and i told her like i'm gonna do this there's no reason why i'm not gonna do this i gotta figure i'm gonna figure out a way to make this happen mm -hmm excuse me and we uh we drove all around town looking at locations and we live on boniface so we came back down the highway and got off on boniface and passed this and i and i literally like u-turned came back around pulled in here on camelot and i was like this is this is it like this is where i need to do it at and then that was in 2014. wow you know so so like just putting that energy out there you know some somehow some way it just worked out that way where I, here I am actually here with a store and then now we're working on um, opening up a, a grow and a manufacturing company right here um, behind the retail store so it's all going to be located in that one area and what was your wife's reaction as you guys were driving around you know you said you were driving around looking for places to rent and then you did that u-turn you're like this is it yeah you know, what was her reaction she just she's just always my biggest supporter you know she just supports she's she kind of just supports my um just what i'm doing and what what i'm passionate about and what i'm pursuing and and she was just excited about the idea and you know excited for me to see the excitement in me you know what i mean so she mm -hmm. was super supportive of it and it's just we could talk about it now. It's just crazy how it all actually worked out to where it ended up being in that spot that I that I, you know, said the last spot I said that night. Here we are today, you know, what, six, nine years later. You know, that doesn't surprise me, though. You know, you're the type of person, at least from my perspective, that is able to manifest those things, you know, because mm -hmm. of your perseverance and also your skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think that's been a trend in my life of just kind of, you know, you have that feeling, you, you think you're going to do something, you, you kind of just don't know exactly how it's going to work out, but you, but you set your sights on something and you just start pushing towards it. And then eventually like things just seem to fall into place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
earlier you mentioned how your dad moved to Alaska in the 60s. And in writing these questions, I realized that I don't think I've ever really asked you about your home life. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've interviewed you a number of times. What did your home life look like? Um, It was, you know, it was the number one thing I'd say about my childhood is I was never lacking love or, you know, I always had everything that I needed and I always had love would be the number one thing. Um, my parents got divorced when I was young. So I grew up in kind of like a split household. And like I said, um, there was, a you know, in that time there was mostly alcohol and cocaine was the, was the two things and a lot of weed and a lot of alcohol, a lot of cocaine. And so that kind of, you know, brought some tough times for me as a kid, as far as like, uh, just kind of growing up in that environment. So I think early on I was kind of, I was kind of sharp and I, I was, I guess I would, I would say that I just kind of had to like figure, figure some things out on my own, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. so, um, which probably kind of led to me being, I was a pretty rebellious, pretty, pretty, uh, mischievous kid growing up. And so I guess, uh, not a lot of supervision like you know those days they would say go outside and you know check in every hour so we were pretty much running up and down Muldoon my whole life you know the the early years just causing causing trouble basically playing outside and causing trouble um so yeah just a lot of uh you know a lot of love but also a lot of you know a lot of issues at home and kind of bouncing back and forth between um, between my mom's house and my dad's house. And then as I got older, I would kind of, you know, play them against each other and go to whichever one was the easier on the discipline type thing. And, okay. and then I ended up like moving out at 15, 16 years old. Where did you move when you were 15 or 16? Well, I moved in with my friend, uh, Ernie for like a year and a half, I think. Um, and that was cool. He had, you know, his mom and dad were together. They're, they're, um, Ernie Gomez. So they're, they're both from Mexico, his parents, and they were super cool. Like they let me, they let me stay there, you know, fed me, took care of me, kind of didn't, didn't really ask for much, kind of just let me crash in his room. And so I live, lived there for like a year and a half. And then, um, he was a year older than me though. So when he, when he left after high school, then I ended up, um, moving back in with my mom. And what was that like moving back in with your mom? Um, you know, just like any teenage kid, you know, I was just bucking up against the, you know, I didn't want to follow any rules. I didn't want to be home at a certain time. I wanted to, you know, smoke weed and, you know, do all the things that I wanted to do. And so it was just kind of like us butting heads um, until I, until I ended up ultimately leaving out of there at 19. Hmm. Yeah. Who, who do you think you're more like? Do you feel like you're more like your mom or more like your dad? Um, I think I'm kind of a mix of both. I see both. Okay. I see both in me, yeah, for sure. Kind of like a mix. Um, definitely got some traits of both of them. You said that you and your buddies were kind of roaming up and down Muldoon when you were younger, mm-hmm. being mischievous, causing trouble. What did that look like? I mean, just like typical, like we used to go, uh, 
we used to steal a lot of stuff from the grocery store from the mapco right there you know stealing candy we used to go and uh kind of have competitions who could steal the most snacks it was really just like stealing snacks and stuff like that stealing baseball cards and and uh stuff like that and then as we got older we would you know just basically just breaking stuff and stealing stuff and uh just kind of getting into trouble like we used to go to um centennial park and steal campground i mean just bad stuff like i look at now like what the hell were you thinking like you know what a what a shitty little kid you were you know but just <laughs> honest honestly i mean it's pretty it's pretty embarrassing um when you think about it as an adult but yeah just a lot of stealing breaking stuff fighting you know stuff like that yeah my my brother jake was a lot like that you know and he had a harder upbringing than I had. And I, I guess I can't really speak for him, but from my perspective, you know, because of that tougher upbringing, he probably acted out, yeah. you know, in, in similar ways. And it seems a little similar to what you went through. Yeah. I mean, I always wanted, I always would look at like, all my cousins, you know, they all had their mom and dad were together. You know, there, there was some alcoholism in my family, but um, I don't think their parents were partying as hard as mine were. And so I, I kind of just always had that that longing for a family, like to have a mom, you know, wish, wishing my mom and dad were together, mm -hmm. you know, wishing things weren't like the way they were. And then, you know, my, my dad had a girlfriend and my mom had a couple of boyfriends before she um, met her second husband who she's married to now um, but during those those times of the other people being involved you know that that just led to probably like a lot of resentment or you know a lot of anger in me mm -hmm. um, just based on the situation and I guess I probably you know took it out in those ways of just you know causing a ruckus how's your relationship with your mom and dad now uh, super well my dad passed away in 2020 oh. um and then but we were super close and then uh i'm super close with my mom now so everything's like all good it all comes full circle you know yeah and my mom's awesome she's always been there both of them really like you know we had we had six kids and so you know at an early age like we we were having six kids in our 20s so mm -hmm. between my mom my dad and my wife's parents and aunt, you know, we always had so much help and support with like, you know, dropping our two kids off here and four kids over here or whatever. Like we, we had all the support we needed to kind of like go out and, and be young and, and have fun and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. they, they were a big help. Like um, they were a big help, you know, in our, in our adult life for sure. And like I said, all my life, like the, I, I never, I never didn't have food or didn't have the clothes I needed or never was without love. Those are the three things like I always had, you know, so it wasn't that bad. Yeah. 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 I think that the type of person who moves to Alaska because of what maybe it represents to them, I think there are so many similarities you know, um, borderline that I grew up in was in a lot of ways filled with, um, 
there was a lot of like petty criminals, yeah. you know, involved in it. Yeah. And we all got along because we had something in common. Mm-hmm. And that thing was snowboarding and skateboarding. But once Borderline went out of business, you took away that commonality, you know, that snowboarding and skateboarding. And so many of those people, unfortunately, went back to the thing that, you know, they were familiar with, which was uh, certain forms of a criminality. Right. And I wonder if maybe rapping was your snowboarding and skateboarding. Yeah. Yeah, probably. It's definitely like the creative outlet, something that I, you know, I would do every day since I, you know, probably started in in high school as far as like really writing, like writing a lot. Um, and then, you know, throughout my like my 20s and 30s, I was pretty actively writing, even though I didn't I didn't put a lot of music out. I had couple hundred songs that I you know what I mean just on mm-hmm. hard drive there's so much music that I have that I've just never put out yeah and so it was just like yeah definitely it's a creative outlet for sure do you remember writing independent hustle yeah I do actually yeah I was uh I think I wrote one verse down uh I used to write a lot by the water on ninth and L I always wrote in my car mm-hmm. and so I wrote I wrote one of those verses um at the end of ninth, like right where you pull up by the water and the, uh, the end of the end of ninth, like when you get to the, like the coastal trail area right there. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I wrote another, the second verse in stuck again, stuck again heights. Yeah. That's, that one always sticks out. Like I remember, I remember the day that we, uh, we made the beat. I remember everything about that song. Who made the beat? Uh, so this guy named Issei in Brooklyn made the beat. So on my first two albums, we were, we we had we had a producer in Bakersfield, California, um, named Fresh Cuts, and then we had another guy um, named Issei in Brooklyn, and he was one that that made the Independent Hustle beat. It was actually, um, it's one of those Biggie videos where it's on Fulton Street, where he's where the guy's doing the pull-ups on the um, on the yellow like the stop the crosswalk signs. Yeah. He lived like one block away from that. Um, he had a nice studio in his downstairs um, area and we were over there and he put that sample on. It's like one of those things, like the best songs always come together in, in five to, I mean, I think he made that beat in maybe 10, 15 minutes max. Really? When we, yeah, right in front of us. And then um, I took it back home and recorded it in Alaska. What did you think when you first heard that beat? Because for me... I have told you this before, you know, I'm I'm such a huge fan of your music. It symbolizes so much of like my childhood, my upbringing in borderline, you know, you guys, Mm -hmm. Arctic flow even performed at a borderline premiere at a certain point. Yeah. That Um, was crazy. Yeah. It was just, you know, it's all so interconnected, man. Same thing. Like it's the, those, those beats, there's always a thing like when the beat makes you stand up, like you're sitting down and it makes you stand up. Mm-hmm. You just know it right away when it comes on. And when you first played that sample, that dun, 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 I just heard that and I stood up and then he put the it was just like instantaneous. You just know you start getting you get the chills. And mm-hmm. You can just feel feel that energy. And that's what I always look for. Like 
when I'm going to write something or I want a beat that does that to me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was just one of those, one of those moments where you just know right away. And, you know, to this day that, and it's probably, you know, that or no shell socks are the two most, most brought up songs that anyone ever talks to me about. And what about no show socks? Same thing. That was, uh, that was made by, um, one of our producers that we had here named Olin and it was made in the studio that we had off of Arctic and uh, same thing. I think I just came in one day and he had the beat made and boom, you know, you know, you just know it as soon as you hear it, you just know. Yeah. That was a little bit later though. That one's like 2000. I was probably four or five years later, maybe three years later after the independent hustle. After independent hustle, did you feel like you were chasing another hit or were you just making music? No, it was just like making music, man. Like, um, I think like the biggest thing for us was we, we put all, I feel like we put everything into making the music and almost nothing into the business side afterwards. And I think that's where that was the shortcoming as far as like, uh, you know, and we really needed to move out of Alaska at the time because things weren't as accessible as they are now. And so kind of in order to in order to like take the next step, I think it was really important to to leave here and stay gone and be working towards that. And, you know, just with the having a family and as many kids as I did, I kind of that just wasn't in my in my path, I guess. Hmm. OK. Yeah. But no, I never like chasing another hit or trying, like, I didn't make that thinking like, oh, this is going to be, you know, you don't, I don't know, you don't go into it thinking that it's just kind of like you hear the beat and then whatever you feel for me, whatever I feel kind of comes and that's, that's what you end up with. So I'm not going into anything thinking like I need to make this type of song or, or anything like that. Well, I mean, you, you did it again in 2015 with Keezy, you know, 907 zone to me, that's, that's just like another anthem. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all like, it's the energy, man. Like Keezy brought a certain energy. You know, I did a lot of stuff with uh, King Koo in 2018. He brought that same type of energy. It's like when I feel like challenged by somebody or I feel like, you know, as a rapper, you always want to, like, if someone asked me to be on a song, like I'm trying to, kill everybody on the song that's Mm -hmm. just off top you know yeah so so like getting with keezy he's like someone that i saw as like oh this this kid is like young and hungry and and passionate and you know we we like had a connection off of the music and and so you feed off of each other's energy Mm -hmm. like same like you know we wrote that song sitting in a car you know smoking some joints and having a beer on stuck again you know just listening to the mm-hmm. those are beats that he he made that beat and um you know i just played it and just say, you know you say one thing and boom there's there's the hook and then you know it just it just comes together easy you know mm-hmm. all the best ones come together so easily when's the last time you went to stuck again heights or you know to the end of ninth to maybe write some music or just relax, meditate. I those are kind of like my go-to spots. I I go there pretty often. So you know, 
you'd be surprised how often you might see me there. So I kind of, I'm a, I like to be in my car. So when I'm driving around, I'll take a, you know, 10, 15, 20 minute break somewhere and, you know, just chill out. So st stuck again is somewhere that I go often because I want to buy a house up there. So I'm always up there looking around and, mm -hmm. you know, imagining where I'm going to live. And then, uh, and ninth, you know, we're downtown a lot. My wife has a business downtown. Um, so I definitely am there killing time pretty often. I feel like you imagine things quite a bit. Like you take some time to conceptualize goals. I feel like I've heard you say that before. Yeah, I definitely am an overthinker. I'm, I'm always thinking about everything. My, I have one of those, like my mind doesn't stop. So it's hard to shut it off. So mm -hmm. I'm definitely always thinking about things, you know, frontwards, backwards, sideways, up and down, all around, you know, over and over. Um, so that's kind of how my brain works for sure. Mm -hmm. And you and Soiled Seed, mm -hmm. Daniel Boitrago, who was also in Arctic Flow with you, you guys grew up together, right? Yeah, so we met in eighth grade, I think. Um, and still one of my best friends to this day. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he, I remember I was rapping, and he had, he just, I think, he, you know, he would, he would mess around here and there, and I was like, dude, I think you can actually do this. Like, you sound good. You should try it. And and then he wrote a rap and wrote a two, and then boom, here we are. We're up, you know. He's he's like full on rapping, so that was it was pretty cool that he got into it. And we actually made um, a tape together, me, him, our other friend Brian, who went by Nauseous, and then mm -hmm. um, Oscar was on it, who went by Obi One at the time. Mm -hmm. That we made a Star Spangled Grammar. It was like a mixtape before we kind of knew what mixtapes were. Um, and this is all like super early, like we were, you know, we found some guy who we could record, who had some studio equipment we set up and we would, we would go record everything live. There was no punching in, there was no anything like that. And we, you know, paid a pretty good amount of money to, to go, um, record that, you know, we put that out and at the same time, um, Jeremy A. Cream was doing, he had just started the Arctic flow thing. And so. Mm -hmm we kind of like put out our first projects at the same time. And then um, he and I had had grown up together also, like we lived in the same neighborhood, um, went to the same schools and everything. <clears throat> and so I guess it was our other buddy, we had a mutual friend named Jared that kind of reconnected us. And then that's kind of how we, we kind of merged together and then got to working on, on Arctic Flow stuff. Mm -hmm. And when did you first hear a creams ak bonded ep gosh that must have been must have been like 99 ish somewhere around there mm -hmm. i just remember you know like what set him apart was the presentation and the sound like hit the artwork on that on that ak blended the way that it sounded just everything looked like you could put it on a cd on a shelf at a at a store back then like what was it what was the music stores called like sam, sam goody? goody or yeah yeah and there was the other one music i forget what it was called 
but yeah like somewhere like that and it's gonna it's gonna stand up next to any of the other professional cds were out that were out at the time Mm -hmm. and so that was like something that i recognized right away as next you know he was next level with that and so um that was kind of like my first impression and then when we actually reconnected he came over to my house in that cutlass study that same cutlass that's on his way too cold cover album cover and he had you know the ak blended ep and i think he had like four or five songs maybe you know a handful of songs and some of the artwork done and he he had like a little you know all his paperwork and in his little file folder and i was just like oh okay this dude's like serious he's next level Mm -hmm. you know he wants to make this happen and so that was kind of like what started everything for me and for me um the song like he came over and i had already heard that ak blended ep but he played the hustler's lifestyle song for me Mm -hmm. which i think is number two on his way too cold album second song and that beat like it was that same thing like when i heard that i was just like oh man i'm all in you know so that was that was how that happened so you guys had a mutual buddy who introduced you to and then a cream jeremy shows up to your house in that cutlass with a briefcase and his music kind of put together business-like mm-hmm. and that was maybe like the first meeting of the minds. Yeah, that was the first meeting and and he didn't introduce us, our buddy. We had already, like I said, we grew up together, Okay, okay. but he just reconnected us. He kind of bridged the gap to get us back together. And he was like, Hey, you're, you're doing this. Jeremy's doing this. Like you guys should link up whatever yeah and then you know um so that's that's how that happened and yeah that was kind of like the spark that that kind of got us to together to join forces and then you know along with me came came salt seed and nauseous but you know nauseous he ended up moving out of state so he was kind of on my first album and and then not on much else after that yeah he was good yeah he's super good super good so. And what happened to Obi Wan? Um, he ended up kind of like going going down a going down a dark road, and uh, oh, okay, ended up got in some trouble and, and went to jail for about ten years or so. But he's out. He's out now. He's doing real good. Uh, he's a barber now, and you know, homo. He's just turned his life completely around. So mm-hmm. super happy for him. He's doing real well now. But probably like you know a lot of that time you know there was just a lot of stuff going on people involved with drugs or you know street life stuff and so people kind of come and go out of your life and and uh that's pretty common pretty common theme could you set up a scene for me what the alaska rap scene looked like when you first got into it yeah i mean there was you know, I would say, I think like there was probably five or six record labels at the time. You know, you had, you had Joker, obviously, uh, he was the, the most well-known, had been doing it the longest, the most, most successful as far as, you know, getting his product out there. Um, Mm -hmm. then you had like AK 49ers, hog life, um, uh, there was a there was five or six I I don't I'm drawing a blank right now but 
five or six strongholds in in the city and then you know the boys in fairbanks were doing their thing as well um and you know it was all about you had out the cut at that time they had put out a tape um mm -hmm. out the cut villains uh, and and just coming out you know like i said we put so much we put so much energy and money into that presentation so when that first album came out came out and you know, when The Way Too Cold came out, you know, we were flying to L.A. and New York to, to mix and master and renting out big studios and just kind of like doing some excessive stuff to to make sure that that sound and look was there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was there wasn't a lot of I don't feel like at the time when we came, there was a lot of people doing shows. I think a lot of people were just putting music out and maybe doing parties here and there, but it wasn't to the point where, you know, people were doing shows at clubs and stuff like that. And so I think that kind of grew as we got a little bit further into our 20s mm -hmm. um, and more and more people started doing that. Um, but at the time there was, you know, there was no, there was no real, there was no social media. There wasn't anything like that. There was a, there was a website called ilaska.com mm -hmm. that was like the first you know kind of like feed of where we could talk back and forth to each other and you know so that was kind of like the first like i guess kind of like social media type of thing that we had but other than that it was just you know hand-to-hand -hand sales like getting your cds out there trying to get on the radio station uh reggie ward was still doing it back then um there was like the KRUA um, 88.1 and then um, so when I made when I made uh, my first album Cold Weather Survival Guide like we we pressed up vinyl so I had vinyl and I, I took that to I was able to get it on KFAT which was like a huge deal back in the day mm -hmm. and uh, Don Mega was the first one that played it um, and then it was getting trying to get your music played in the bars so there was a couple of DJs around town that um you know, took the record and put it on at the club and stuff like that. So it was really like a grassroots effort of like physically trying to get your, your music and your name out there. Mm -hmm. And so, and after, after you got it onto KFAT and, you know, before that KRUA and then, you know, into the bar scene, were you, celebrating like those successes or were you just going down you know a checklist it's like okay now i got it on to kfat now it's you know now it's on to the next thing yeah no definitely celebrating the successes and okay there wasn't a checklist it was just like man what do you think we can do what what do you like what should we do we we're just kind of you know trying to figure it all out and um so yeah i remember <laughs> i remember i was working at uh Pacific Alaska forwarders, like in, in the world, I was like, I've only had a, f a few jobs in my life. And this was one of them was like right around that time. My, my stepdad was like the GM there. So I like got a job and I worked there for two weeks and I was just like over it already, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and the day, the day, like I've literally, I don't think I've had a job since like I was 21 like a, a real not like working for somebody else you know yeah and uh it was always myself i started doing real estate in 2006 and that's been my main thing ever since then but 
you know, prior to that, it was just, it was really selling weed. And, um, but <laughs> I remember like, it was like a Friday and like the song came on in the warehouse and it was like that TV moment where you're like, fuck it, I quit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I literally like me and Daniel, like the song came on the radio and we like went to lunch and never came back. <laughs> we both quit. Like it's over. We're You know, we're going to blow up after this. And there's so many of those feelings of like, you know, it, looking back and like what I always tell younger people now is like, it's so much, it's, it really is. 90% business, 10% music. There's mm -hmm. so, so many people that are, that are good at music, but if you don't have that same type of person doing business for you or, or doing it yourself, you know, it's just not going to work. Yeah. And so there was a lot of moments like that where like when, when we mixed my first album, we were in a place called unique studios, which is on 47th and 7th in Manhattan. And it was like on the 10th floor of this building in times square. And we were there like, in June. So it was the Puerto Rican day parade and New York city. And it was just like an awesome experience. We're looking out the window of the studio and your, your view is times square and TRL back in the, those days was big. And mm -hmm. that show was right there. And I mean, like, so we're 21, 22 years old and just feeling like, man, we're here, we made it. Yeah. You know? And then, but you know, after that experience and what's next, you know? Yeah. And so, so yeah, there was a ton of those moments where you're just celebrating super high and then after it's over, you know, it's like, okay, what do we do now? Yeah. And just for a frame of reference for people listening, Unique Studios is a legendary studio yeah. where musicians like James Brown, Ice-T, Tupac, Nas, Madonna, yeah. Public Enemy, Big Pun, Mob Deep. Yep. You know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but they all recorded there. Yeah, it was a it was a super cool spot to be in. And the way so like through that producer, Issei, we met um, our engineer, Big Lou, who mixed both of my first two albums. And he was um, he was kind of aged, maybe like on the t on the downside of his career at the time. Hmm. But he had mixed, you know, he he actually mixed Shook Ones for Mob Deep. Really? He okay. Mixed, yeah, he mixed Biggie, he mixed Meth. He mixed mixed all those. Um, he used to work at Hit Factory, and there's another one. I forget the name of it, but he worked at oh, uh, Quad Studios. Mm -hmm. Some of those he worked all in those big studios in New York back then, and so, um, yeah. As far as the the people, uh, the names in that studio, so yeah, he hooked us up with that studio at Unique and kind of got us in there. We rented the room and then you go in there and you see all the plaques on the wall, the people that you mentioned, mm -hmm. and then some, and then, you know, going in the back room and using the bathroom and you open the thing and KRS-One, is his tag is on there and Nas is tagged on there and Fat Joe's tag is on there. And That's wild. All these people like on the graffiti wall in the back, you know, so it was, it was pretty cool, like just being in that atmosphere for sure at such a young age, you know. Yeah. 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 I mean when you're looking at those plaques, KRS-One, Fat Joe, when you are thinking about the fact that like Tupac, mm -hmm. you know, has recorded in the studio, I mean, you can't, there's, there's really nothing above that. Yeah. You know, it's like you're on the path. Yeah. And that's exactly what it felt like. You feel like you're on the path, like you're doing the right things, like you're soaking in the energy of that, 
of that moment and those moments and the space mm -hmm. that you're in and you know you feel like you're you're on the path to taking over the world same same thing you know and that, that was kind of that was the feeling that we had at that time for sure and getting back to you know you visualizing things visualizing goals conceptualizing them what did that future look like you know following that path i mean i i think it to me in my mind it was going to be those same things like touring doing all the things that a professional musician would be doing touring making videos doing shows you know being out doing in stores and talking to people doing interviews promoting all those things and i think that at the same time as wanting to do that i also had you know this family that i had to take care of and these kids that i had to take care of and i think in order for one to work at that time the other one had to give you know what i mean mm -hmm. and so ultimately i i had the dream of continuing to pursue that but in terms of executing i didn't have the time or the availability to to go ahead and execute so you know probably after that there's a big span where you're kind of still thinking that you're going to do this and you're still taking small steps towards it but in order f for to be successful at anything you kind of you have to go all in mm -hmm. you know and i just i never uh was able to do that just based because of the family situation really and you know part of that goes back to the way i was brought up and i always you know wanted always wanted a family growing up wanted to be in a in a you know, mom and mom and dad are in the home, you know, you're in the same house, you're not moving around all the time. Mm -hmm. And so when I had the opportunity to make a family of my own, those were really, those things were really, really high on my priority list, you mm -hmm. know, and I just, that was always my number one priority was making sure that those things are in place. And, and so in order to do that, you know, this stuff that I would have needed to do to pursue this kind of gets put on the back burner. Do you think that you wanted that family life, you know, that like healthy family life because you lacked it when you were younger? Yeah, I think I think that's a big part of it. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Most definitely. Do you think that you've provided it for your you know, you, your wife and your kids? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I mean I've I've been in the same house since 20, 2007, you know, I've been just had my 18th uh, wedding anniversary in June. Congratulations. Um, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, all of my kids are, you know, for, we only have two kids at home now. So we have uh, our 16 year old is the only uh, one that's not an adult yet. And then our 19 year old, she's living at home right now, too. Um, but yeah, all four of the kids, the rest of the kids are out and doing their own thing. They're all you know, successful in life and, and our family is still super tight and close knit to this day. Mm -hmm. My, my house is the house that, you know, the family gathers at everyone comes over to for holidays and birthdays and things like that. So I definitely, um, I'm definitely happy with how things turned out on the family side for sure. Do any of your kids rap? Um, you know, what's funny is like when they were younger, they do like they sing. Okay. But like, I would say two of my daughters sing and then my son can sing. He sings also. Um, and then when they were younger, they would rap messing around and they're pretty good, but they, it's like, 
maybe got shy about it or something as they got older and they don't really do it anymore. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I used to, I used to have uh, my daughters freestyling all the time. Really? How were they? Pretty good, man. I went on a, a road trip with, uh, I went on a road trip with my two oldest daughters uh, when they were for their six and four birth, four year old birthday. And, uh, we drove from, we flew to LA Drove over to Texas to visit with my aunt, stayed there, and then drove back to Vegas and back to L.A. So we put a lot of miles on on driving, and those, those road miles, like, my daughter Anna was, <laughs> she was busting, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> because I used to, like, I'll, I freestyle all the time, so I would, like, play the word game with them where, the you know, I start rapping, and then they just throw a word, and then I rap off that word. And yeah. so then I started, like, having them do it, and... uh Anissa wasn't too into it, but Annalise, she she definitely got into it there for a while. She tore it up. She tore it up. <laughs> my, my younger daughter, Jace, could do it too when she was younger, but she doesn't do it too much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed Phonetic a while back, and he made a comment about you, Daniel, and Jeremy's stage presence and abilities as performers, how you guys' skill was beyond what he'd seen in other local and even national acts he realized how talented you guys were what do you think got you guys to that level i don't know i think of, i think about that i used, i would think about that a lot like uh we didn't put a lot of time into practicing so we just kind of showed up at the shows and and you know we might do a run through but I feel like we were kind of under rehearsed, mm. you know, a lot of times. So I think it, I feel like it's just kind of like our character, personality, our upbringing, you know, having the conf- having confidence. Um, you know, we all kind of grew up under the same well, Jeremy and I especially. But, uh, you know, we went to the same schools and you kind of you kind of had to be able to stand up for yourself and stand out. And, mm-hmm. and so I think, you know, I think that contributed to it was just kind of the environment that we lived in and you know you couldn't be timid and so getting up there it was just kind of natural mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know about for them but for me I was always kind of like a loud kind of kind of class clown, class clown type of character uh, always getting in trouble and just kind of you know never scared to talk or never shy I guess so it just kind of was a natural thing yeah I have seen you perform a couple times and I mean, it's always impressive. Well, thanks, man. That's, that's good to hear. I uh, try my best. I feel like, I feel like, um, the natural talent carried us a long way and, you know, you can always improve on that by practicing more. And so I think there's a lot of times where maybe, maybe we drank a little too much or having a little, <laughs> you know, little too much pre-funk led to some <laughs> leads to some some hiccups there yeah but you know for the most part you just keep the energy going and that's what it's really all about even when you mess up you just make it seem like you didn't yeah you just finesse yeah. it yeah yeah in that same interview with phonetic he said he's always wanted to make an album with you he said that the version of you that comes out when he raps with you is his favorite version of josh boots and the version of phonetic that comes out when he raps with you is his favorite version of himself. Yeah. You know, the MC side of him would really like to make an album with you. 
Yeah, and I feel the same way about him. Uh, he was always someone that, you know, another one of those guys that when he com when he comes around, you know, he's just got that certain presence and that he's on another level mm -hmm. when it comes to like when it comes to just rapping or freestyling. And so it's it just goes back to that same energy of being competitive and like any time. I remember one time he came, Daniel had a little studio set up in his in his um at his house like one of the first like with the inbox and stuff and i think me and phonetic made like eight songs in two days or something like that mm -hmm. like just went crazy and uh on a lot of like alcoda beats yeah um and so yeah it's just like we feed off of each other you know that when, whenever whenever i'm around someone that i feel is on that same on that same level lyrically or with the presence and i just i, I kind of want to push to be a little bit above them like that's what i'm doing in my head you mm -hmm. know so so it just brings out the best in both of us are there any albums or collaborations that you wish you'd done or you know could see yourself doing in the future uh, i don't think so i mean i i think what what happened is what was supposed to happen and you know like if i i'm open to doing it, anything and so if it works out and things fall into place, I feel like it happens, you know, uh, I would have liked to have just done, more, put more, put more things out. I would say that would be the one thing. Like, I, I feel like it's not right to have all these songs that are done and ready that people have never heard. And so I feel like, um, that would be my only thing, I guess, that I wish I would have done differently is just put more of the music out instead of kind of keeping it in my hard drive. Do you think that there is an album on there on your hard drive that you could put together that you'd be proud of? Uh, it's, I think so. I mean, I, well, I go back and listen to it now. Like I had a whole I think in 2010, I did a whole album cover and everything and, and just kind of scratch. I had a brother Ali feature on there. Mm, okay. Um, just kind of, kind of never put it out for whatever reason. And then it was always the thing of like, you know, you want it to be put out right and done right and you want to do all these things and then getting all that stuff to line up when it doesn't happen, then the music just sits and got kind of gets stale to you or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and then it seems old, even though people haven't heard it and, and things like that. So I definitely think like I'm a different person now and in a different headspace. So sometimes when I hear some of those things, they, they sound I don't, I don't know if I'd necessarily be proud of it, but was it, but is it good? And will other people enjoy it? Most definitely, mm -hmm. you know, I heard an album of yours when I was working on an issue of crude back when, you know, crude was a magazine and I forget the name of it, but it was like a happy Josh Boots, if if that makes any sense, rather than like a like a battling Josh Boots. Yeah, yeah, that's like the um, I think it's the Alaska Grown Volume One okay. album, and it's kind of like uh, during that time I was I was just trying to like make a transition to more of like clean. I think there's maybe like just a couple cuss words on there. Uh, that was that time was like personally I'm trying to go from 
this sort of like, you know, you get getting older and, you know, being looked at as this like rapper dad when you go to your kids' sporting events and stuff like that, you know, that was like, <laughs> I guess that was like uh, trying to find, trying to act like a square. Okay. So that was your square album? <laughs> I, I guess. I don't I don't know. Not like act like a square, but you know, be better, have a better presentation that could reach more people, I guess. You know. I wonder if that was self-imposed, you know, the rap dad or were you really getting those vibes from other people? I think it's 50-50. I think a lot okay. of it's self-imposed where you're just in your own head like, you know, I'm coming to the hockey rink coaching and I got, you know, cornrows and I'm wearing a jersey. I look different than the other the other hockey parents. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I feel like they kind of or you know, I think a lot but but a lot of it like you is probably in your head too, you know. I think it's 50/50. Because you know, those songs that were on the Crude Awakening EP that mm -hmm. Alcoda produced that you know, featured you and Keezy, to me, that was like, that was independent hustle boots. Yeah. You know, like you, you had, I don't know if it was like found your way back to it or like revitalize that person. Yeah. I think definitely that was like a, that was kind of like a circle back to that feeling. And I, and like, that's what music is, right. It captures where you're at in that specific time and you go mm -hmm. through you go through all kind of different changes as a person as you go through your life and so every kind of album every song is is a is really like a time capsule of that moment or those moments that you're in during that time when you're creating it and that that feeling with Keezy was kind of like definitely back to that like rapping in the car like freestyling you know mm -hmm. hearing a beat and just rapping and making something and it was there was no pressure there was no you know, no expectations. Um, and it was just fun. And I think like on some of that earlier stuff, you know, you, we do like a couple of the Arctic flow albums and then like, we have these grandiose, um, visions or dreams of where we, where we want to take it. And so in order to do that, that way, things need to be put out in this specific way and do all these things. And, you know, it just like you, you lose the fun in it mm -hmm. kind of, you know what I mean? And I feel yeah. like that happened to me for a while where it was like expectations and pressure as opposed to like just making the good, like the best stuff comes out of just, like I said, just natural, easy, not trying too hard. That's where you're going to find your best work. Yeah. You know, overthinking. And so that was just, yeah, overthinking everything, you know, and that was, that was with Keezy just getting back to that, that fun, just making stuff that was fun, you know? Yeah. You know, I want to ask you about some pretty well-known beefs you've been involved in over the years, if that's okay. Yeah. What happened between you and A-Cream? Um, I don't, I don't think anything specifically happened and that's not like a beef. You know, I don't have any beef or wish any, you know, I love him. I love what we accomplished together. Um, you know, that was a great time in our life. And I think we did a lot of cool things together. I think just I'm to a point in my life where time and energy is really important to me. And mm -hmm. we've just kind of grown apart, is what I would say, to a, to a point where 
you know, it's just, it's just in a space where I'm in a different spot in my life and, um, you know, we just don't talk anymore. Mm-hmm. So, but it's nothing, it's nothing like there's no one specific thing, you know? You know, it seemed like, and this is just me having talked with you about this stuff, me having talked with Jeremy, you know, doing the third issue of crew, just kind of having a glimpse into the Alaska rap scene is you two are alpha males, you know? And when you, Mm. when you put two alpha males in competitive, I should say competitive alphas in the same situation in a competitive environment that, uh, you know, butting heads is a real thing that can happen. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of butting heads for us, just kind of like, um, just a lot of ego stuff. Like, you know, while we were working together and doing the Arctic flow, um, just between the two of us, cause like you said, we're both alpha, we're both leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then, you know, as we kind of like separated, just set, you know, come into the realization like, oh, we're going to do something different. You know, I'm going to do my own thing. You do your own thing. That was just a big relief, you know, mm-hmm. and and that was kind of the start of things starting to feel good for me again, making music. And it wasn't anything that was his fault or anything on him or anything on me. It was just the dynamic, you know, mm-hmm. the, the dynamic became not as fun as it used to be. You know, and a lot of times those arguments and fights and so those lead to the best creations, you know. So it's it's good to be able to be honest and be open and, and you know, conversate on that level. So, you know, but just like anything, you know, people grow apart. And I think ultimately we just grew apart as far as working together and, you know, our friendship. Mm-hmm. Could you see you two maybe just making one more song together? Um, I mean, in order for me to make music with someone, I have to already kind of like, I feel like be able to connect with the energy and what type of thing, you know, what type of person they are. And so I just, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say never say never, but, uh, you know, right now I don't, I don't see it. Yeah. You know, I think, um, maybe, to add some some clarity at least for myself is when you know I first started crude it was a magazine and I wanted these issues to be time capsules of you know these cultures you know the hip hop culture the snowboard culture um north slope culture those things and what I pretty quickly realized is working with that many people on an issue is is very it's rewarding after everything is done or you know these small goals are finished that's very rewarding Mm -hmm. but it is it's tough you know it's tumultuous it's uh stress inducing but at the end of the project you know you have this book you know in your case you have this album or you have this this song that you can really appreciate 
But then once you kind of get over that honeymoon phase, mm-hmm. you really think about the process that you had to go through to get that thing. And for me, I was able to do four issues. And then eventually I was like, you know, I think I might need to transition this thing into something that is like self-powered, you know, yeah. where I don't really have to rely on anybody else. I don't have to needlessly butt heads with anybody else. I can, I can just rely on myself. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense and uh, sounds pretty familiar. So, and I think like, you know, with us too, it's, I don't know. I, I'm, I kind of have certain principles that I stand on with what, what you should do and what you shouldn't do and, you know, how you should treat people and how you don't. And once those lines are kind of crossed for whatever reason, then, um, I don't know, I'll, I'll cut people off if they do something that I don't approve of, you know? Mm -hmm. And so... That's kind of where it is. Yeah. And what about Joker the Bail Bondsman? Wasn't there a rift between you two for a while? Yeah, but that that was just like, you know, stupid young young stuff, like ego ego stuff, you know. There's no there's no bad we we squashed that a long time ago. I mean, we that all kind of started from uh basically, you know, us coming onto the scene and you know him and him and uh, a cream going back and forth on that on that message board you know and then once my name got brought into it then i i was like you know re- i was just ready to fight everybody back then you know what i mean so mm-hmm. but that was so that was so long ago and you know we we squashed that 10 10 12 years ago or you know like it, it was never ongoing anyway but you know the little bit of of uh, the little bit of problems that we had, we, you know, cleared the air on that maybe 2010 or somewhere like that on the phone. Okay. So that was a long time ago. On the phone? Yeah, because he, he was in jail at the time when we talked. Okay, okay. And I was over at um, at Rob Beats studio, and he had called Rob Beats, and then we got on the phone and talked about it. Really? Yeah, like not just saying, like, man, no, I was stupid, no, no bad blood or whatever, you know. And that just happened randomly. Just randomly, yeah. As we we had never really, I don't think we talked about it after, you know, the little period where we were going back and forth, you know, in person. And then that, at least that's how I remember. It was a long time ago, but that's what I remember is that uh, being over at Raw's studio and and he had called Raw, and then we, you know, we got on the phone and, you know, basically just verbalized like, yeah, this is stupid, no, no issues anymore, type thing. Yeah. Yeah. So Raw is the great mediator. <laughs> <laughs> not not really. Like there wasn't, not, he didn't say or do any, it was just the conduit. You okay. Know, like, okay. Yeah. So I think it was just something that needed to be said. It was, like I said, it wasn't no big deal. It wasn't like an ongoing thing that either one of us were thinking about at, mm-hmm. at any time. You know, it was just, it was a stupid thing that happened that was unnecessary. Like we should have we should have all be trying to help each other. And that's, that's how I always was with everybody. He's really the only person that, um, I ever got into it with in the music. And like, I, I think it's a lot of us being similar too, as far as like being the alpha being, Mm -hmm. you know, confident, wanting to be on top, you know, and, 
and you're going to naturally kind of butt heads until you figure out how that, how that's going to all sit together. Yeah. And being young yeah. too. And, and being young. Yeah. 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 Like super young. We were like, that all happened when we were like early twenties, you know? So that's like 20 years ago. Yeah. So, but yeah, like even during that time, like I would always, when I was out, people people always knew about joker because the the videos the bet videos the uncut and mm -hmm. everywhere i go when you say you're from alaska that's the number one person that they ask about or they talk about so you know like during all that time i would i never said nothing negative about him to anybody else you know i always like supported him because he's from my home state and yeah i recognize the um all of the accomplishments that he did achieve you know mm -hmm. and he he really pushed the envelope further than than anybody else had up until that point and really even to now i'd say you know Duckman is probably the neck or you know he's probably kind of taking that slot over but as mm -hmm. far as what in my era growing up and people that i would hear about it was always joker you know people would say to me it would always be joker yeah joker seem like he really understood the business and public relations side of rap. Yeah. You know, he um, has a story about how he paid for a journalist who I think wrote for The Source, mm -hmm. right? Isn't that it? And he paid for him to come up to Alaska and he just had this whole, you know, schedule planned out you know, to give this journalist the, like the Alaska rap experience, you know, that, yeah. that actually reminds me a lot of my dad, you know, like his kind of guerrilla techniques, yeah. his guerrilla business techniques. Yeah. Just guerrilla marketing. If you ever heard him, uh, I don't know where it was, but I heard one interview he was doing and he kind of went into his, how he would cold call. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh man, this guy can sell water to a whale. Like the way he can talk to people on the cold call. I mean, that's how he got into, uh, got his videos on BET, right? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, just like super good at, at the marketing side and getting, getting the product out there and, you know, pushing the envelope, trying to, trying to pursue what, to pursue his dreams, you know? Mm -hmm. And where does that relationship stand today between you and Joker? Oh, we're cool. We're still cool to this day. Yeah. Can you imagine doing a song with him? I actually did a song for him, uh, it was something that he was going to put out a couple of years ago. And then I don't know whatever happened to the song, but, but yeah, I mean, it's on a hard drive. It's on hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have the song actually. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, I do have it. It was like, but there's like nine rappers on it from, uh, it was kind of like a bunch of the people that were, um, doing things at the time in Anchorage and they were over at, they went over to Rouse studio and put something together. And then I ended up coming in and doing the last little, little verse on there. I actually had, I actually found out about it and then hit him up to see about getting on it. And then, you know, went over there and got on it. So, yeah, but yeah, no, for sure. So you wrote the forward to crude issue three arrogant minds and in it you said that you truly expected and believed in your heart that you guys would take over the world do you feel like you guys could have gone farther could have done more yeah i think like you know 
definitely think that we could have done more. I think that the talent was there. The you know all the things were there. It's just living on an island in Alaska to where you know financially it's not. So uh, the way I kind of describe it is this: like if you live somewhere in the lower forty-eight and you can do what we did here, and then you kind of slowly branch that out to the next you know, the cities that are an hour away or three hours away or whatever. And you kind of work from the inside out to build your, your sphere. Right. And that sphere keeps growing mm-hmm. by, by, cause in those times it was all about doing shows and interviews and being out, meeting people, passing out your music, get, getting the word out. Right. And you had to physically be out there doing that as well as all the other publicity stuff that would be going on in the back and getting your music on radio and having videos and all those things. So financially in order for us to do that every time we leave here we have to rent a car and you know have hotels and and places to stay and all that Mm -hmm. stuff so it wasn't like we could just drive to the next area to continue growing the fan base you know it was so much more logistically involved in it Mm -hmm. and i think definitely if had we left the state then i think we could have gone a lot further you know Mm-hmm. As far as making a career out of it, I don't, I don't know where it would have ended up. But I, I know for me personally, I feel like I definitely could have, you know, made made a career out of doing music and doing shows and and having a solid fan base that was built over time. Um, if, but like I said, it, that that involves being gone from your family a majority of the days of the year, mm-hmm. and so I think it just wasn't in the cards. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about some of these questions and I feel like there's been a few that are kind of more or less asking you to reflect on something that could be seen as you guys didn't go far enough or you could have done more or mm-hmm. to put it bluntly like a failure, but I... I just want to make it clear that I don't mean that at all. You know, I believe you're right where you're meant to be. And I think that the reason that I ask those questions is because you have perspective now, you know, it's been so many years since all of that happened, you know, you, you still have those skills, but you're not that same person. And so to talk to you now is to talk to somebody who can comment on, you know, past Josh Boots. Yeah, and I and I agree. I, I understand and I don't take it in any way as an offensive comments. I mean, those are thing the things that you're saying are all things that I've thought myself and have thought through for years, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I I have a pretty good understanding of how things came to be they the way they were, why they why they are that way and, and where I'm at now and, and I'm solid and okay with all of that. Mm-hmm. You know. What was or what is Marvelous Entertainment? So that was just kind of like what we created as a placeholder for Arctic Flow basically after, um, after Jeremy and I kind of talked about parting ways the way that we left it was kind of Arctic flow is something that we both or that really all of us created. And, you know, Jeremy 
came up with the name and did all that business stuff in the beginning, but we, we all built that into what it became. Mm -hmm. And so the way that our conversation was when we kind of, you know, went in a different direction was, you know, we're kind of let that be what it is. We, we can all use that however we see fit type of thing. Um, it's part of all of our legacy, but then moving forward, we're going to do, you know, something different. Mm -hmm. And so Daniel, we created that to put new music out under basically. And again, it was another, it was another thing of, you know, making the music and, and not doing the business side of things as far as like pushing the product. Mm -hmm. I never was into the back end. So I was into making music. You know, mm-hmm. and what I like to do is make music. And then as far as like sitting down and doing the hours and hours of legwork on the business side, on the back end, was just something that I never was interested in or had time to do because I'm trying to keep my my family afloat at the same time, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, it was just something that that got put on the back burner. So we we did really good at making music and then fell short when it came to the business side. Years ago, you gave me a piece of advice that I've thought of ever since. And that is that your friends are not your fans. How did you come to that realization? Oh, cause your friends will tell you whatever, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll just say, Oh yeah, that's great. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, your fans are authentic, like people that don't know you personally, but they, and it's not to say that your friends aren't your fans, but what it is is that, you know, your fa- your fans are going to, they're going to, it's just a different type of energy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you want to, I guess, I don't know, that's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> you got me stumped now. Um Yeah, I don't know. Are you sure I said that? I know you said that because <laughs> I I wrote it down and I I just love it. I love that gem of knowledge because for me at least, you know, I can think that I'm going to create this thing, you know, early on in crude and people are just going to flock to it and um because it's a representation of something that's real, it's authentic. It's Alaskan and maybe in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, I can co-opt the entire, you know, borderline scene and all of them who I know either personally or um, kind of on the outskirts of what borderline was and they'll flock to it. And, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, those are friends and acquaintances. And so the audience is already built in. And then I realized like, okay, there's, there's a good number of people that came from that scene to appreciate, enjoy this, but not all of them. And then there's, you know, new listeners or new readers. And those are the people that I should be thinking about. Not that I shouldn't be thinking about the borderline people, but the people that came just, you know, for me. I should appreciate. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for sure. And I, it's like thinking a little bit more about it. I think it's like also like, you know, your friends, 
are only a small group of people, right? Mm-hmm. And the fan, your, your fans is much broader, right? And mm-hmm. so you can't just be happy and satisfied and relaxed and kick your feet up because your friends are all saying, man, you're sick, your, your product mm-hmm. is dope, your music's dope, or your magazine's dope. Like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like, that's just a smidgen of what's out there. And so, like, the fan base that you can create and cultivate and build over time is really endless, you mm-hmm. know? And so I think it's important to just kind of like more so like looking outside of your own box and your own circle and, and having a broader, a broader view, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Okay. So I know that you're a big outdoors guy. Mm-hmm. You camp, you hunt. I was thinking it would be cool to end this on a hunting story. <laughs> a hunting story. <laughs> Um, let me see. I don't know if I have any cool hunting stories. I have a funny one. The first time I, the first time I went, um, well, there's a couple, there is, (laughs) (laughs) I think being so, being so excited to kill a caribou and, and, uh, I was, you know, after I killed my first caribou, I just, the anticipation and the, you know, everything that goes into the trip, you know, the build up, you're talking about it, you're asking a million questions, you're putting your gear together, you're doing all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get out there and you actually get the kill and that whole, you know, like everything kind of comes full circle and, you know, you you have the experience of taking your first animal and that's an emotional, spiritual mm-hmm. experience. and And so... There's all that buildup that that went into that, and uh, funny story about that is so I didn't know what I didn't know what the process was of like the clean you know of dressing field dressing the animal and like what mm-hmm. how much blood is there gonna be or what's the guts or what's the bugs gonna be <laughs> so yeah so on my first time I ever killed a caribou all that stuff had happened and then after it was done and you know I said my said my little words and had peace with the animal and stuff and then mm-hmm. Daniel like turned around Daniel was with me and he turned around to go he turned around to go get um <laughs> he turned around to go get his to go get whatever his equipment to come back and i had i had brought like a kit because i just bought all new um i had bought all new rain gear and all this hunting gear and stuff and i didn't want to get it messy so like (laughs) when he came back i had completely changed out of my hunting gear and i'm in like a full rain suit like (laughs) with with gloves up to my elbow like the elbow gloves and i had like a um and I had like a mosquito net on my head and, all this shit. and he just like turned around and he's like, what the, f-? he just started dying laughing. And he just like snapped a picture of me. And to this day, like that's a, that's a photo that he loves to re- recirculate from, you know, every couple of years and make fun of me about my first, uh, my first field dressing experience. So that was pretty funny. That's awesome. Yeah. But. I got so I got there's a ton of funny outdoor stories, man. <laughs> just like you just you learn out there like it's a learning experience every time, you know. Yeah. That and like snow machining, like getting stuck in the you know, getting stuck in Petersville, lost, you know. Mm-hmm. I've, that's happened to me a few times, so it's just it's a constant learning experience going out there. Yeah. Getting in the wilderness, so you know something I just noticed. 
you know, while you were talking about hunting mm. and just just now, just for a moment, you were talking about snow machining mm. is you seem happy talking about that stuff. Yeah. You seem like there's a lot of energy behind that. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we've been talking about rap music, you know, and your past, mm-hmm. you know, this entire conversation. And it seemed like there was possibly a little less energy involved in that. I, I noticed that too. Now that you mentioned it, that's crazy. I kind of like perked up, smiled, started laughing. Yeah. Thinking about hunting. And now that's, <laughs> I guess like that outdoor stuff is my, is kind of like my release now, but all that stuff, like getting out in the woods when I, when I, uh, it's like throttle therapy to me when I'm in the woods and when I'm snow machining, I don't think about anything else in my, it's the only time when my mind is completely free and clear. And I don't think about anything else except for the next turn and what I'm doing right in that moment. And so it's almost like, that spot that spot in life where you really truly at peace you know Mm -hmm. and so it's it's that's one of the best things about living in alaska is being able to get out and do those things an hour away from your your house you know yeah well maybe next time we chat we can do it on daniel's podcast and we can just talk all about hunting (laughs) i know (laughs) dang it And was I was I that um, was was the energy shift that noticeable? I it was noticeable, but it wasn't. Um, it's not bad, you know. I just I spend a lot of time talking to people, mm-hmm. and and I know you, and I just know from having a conversation with you, you know, like leading up to this conversation, we talked on the phone like twice, you yeah. know, and. And you're you, you know, there's energy there. You are, uh, you're making jokes, you, you know, you're in a good mood. Whereas, um, at least with this conversation, I did notice there was a little solemnness, yeah. you know, when you're talking about your past and about, you know, your rap career. I think it's like trying to find the right word. I, I, I noticed that too. I don't know. Maybe we got to redo it. <laughs> No, no, no. I, I think this is, I'm joking. I think this is I'm joking. Great. I'm joking. I noticed that too. It's like, I think it's like something that I don't, I don't think about or talk about a lot anymore. You know what I mean? And, uh, mm-hmm. and so it's like trying to, trying to find the right words to say without saying everything. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to drag anything or anybody through, you know, in the dirt mm-hmm. so some of the stuff is just like perf- it's it's like water under the bridge you don't want to talk you don't want to i guess say the full scope of it you know so it's like i think a lot of it is just trying to think trying to think of how to say it yeah as opposed to like just talking naturally what i would say if we were just in a normal conversation you know not recording yeah for sure possibly there's uh you know you're just being overly thoughtful about it yeah, just being like reserved, trying not to like, yeah, just trying not to say the wrong thing or whatever. Yeah, for sure. So, well, Josh, that's those are all the questions I have for you. You know, I want to thank you for spending this time with me, uh, talking about your music. You know, like I mentioned in the very beginning of this conversation, you told me uh, a couple weeks back that you're finally ready to talk about all this stuff and that you wanted to chat with me 
on here because I've been basically hounding you for years, you know, for this interview. So yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, no problem, man. Thank you. Thanks for uh, still being down to do it after all this time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 